Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, good morning, everybody. It's another exciting day at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, you know, when you take uh, strong positions, people have different ideas. And sometimes they show up on your doorstep and try to block the entrance to the building. Uh, but it's uh, a really an honor uh, and a pleasure uh, to welcome all of you here today. Uh, Mrs. James uh, sends her apologies, and she sent me. I'm Kim Holmes, the executive vice president of the Heritage Foundation. She's up in the command post in her office uh, dealing with the, uh, the protesters out front, and she, uh, I just talked to her about five minutes ago. Uh, she told me to, to send on her congratulations to all of you uh, for being here today and uh, to, ex to apologize for her absence and explain that she's actually going to be meeting with a couple of the protesters in her office soon. So they're up there trying to figure out uh, what the issue is and what they plan to say. So it's really a, a pleasure and a, and a privilege, actually, to welcome all of you here today. Uh, since 1981, the Heritage Foundation and the Bradley Foundation have enjoyed a very close and productive relationship. Uh, we have shared values, and we certainly have a deep an abiding love for the Constitution, and we have worked in ways large and small uh, that I believe are doing much to preserve and strengthen the nation that all of us uh, so dearly love. And just this year, for example, the Bradley Foundation is generously supporting two initiatives of great relevance to society, the Election Law Integrity Project, uh, you will hear Hans talk about that, and the Stop Force Funding Project. And, of course, uh, you are here today for the State of the Constitution Symposium. We have uh, uh, two panels so with an exciting roster of speakers, and we have the first speakers here already fired up and ready to go for you. Uh, these and similar initiatives have done, and they, of course, will continue to do so, uh, much to advance the mission of building an America where freedom, opportunity, prosperity, and civil society flourish. And now, as always, we must remain vigilant in our support of the Constitution uh, as the foundation of the American experiment, a foundation that is uh, constantly under uh, attack, constantly being challenged, constantly being reinterpreted in ways uh, that uh, subvert the intentions of the founders of this nation. Uh, there have been threats throughout uh, the history of the nation, but uh, we have faced them each time and we have risen to the occasion, and so long as we have initiatives like this, I think we will continue to do so. From the, uh, and that's why it is certainly important to have uh, this partnership, and that is why uh, today's events are so important. I would like to offer a special thanks to the Bradley Foundation's team for making this possible, and please join me in a round of applause for Rick Graber, the President, Carl Hellstrom, the Vice President, 
Jessica Dean, a vice president and a, for, a former Heritage alum, and Diane Saylor, the special assistant and the conference director. So please join me in a welcome applause. And now I ask Ed Fulner to come up and say a few words. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. It is uh, an exciting day here, and uh, since disability rights are constitutional rights, I'll let one of the two panels uh, discuss what article that is. <laughs> right, Hans? Uh, welcome, everyone, to the Heritage Foundation, to our Douglas and Sarah Ellison Auditorium. Uh, I had the great honor and pleasure of, of being president of Heritage for 37 years the first time around and seven months the second time around. Uh, and this this morning, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to this annual symposium. Those of you who are here for the first time should know that this is the seventh symposium in this series. It's an annual series, and past ones in kind of reverse chronological order. Last year, the discussion was on the future of education reform. 2016 was the future of work in America. 15 was higher education in America. Uh, 14 was America's prospects, promise and peril. And 2013 was entitled, Are We Freer Today Than We Were 10 Years Ago? 2013, I would be remiss if I didn't. Note that this was a particularly memorable year with, for the Bradley Prize and the Bradley Foundation for me personally, since it was the 10th anniversary of the Bradley Prize celebration, and because I was a winner of a Bradley Prize. So 13 was very special. In 2012, the Bradley Foundation held its inaugural symposium in honor of Bradley Prize winner James Q. Wilson, who had recently passed. Uh, and to my mind, it's noteworthy that our, one of our key panelists here today on this first panel, uh, Chris DeMuth, was the person who really pulled that, that first panel discussion back in 2012 together. So welcome back, Chris, my former colleague when we were both running our own institutions. I remember one time when Chris said to me he wished that AEI had as many supporters as the Heritage Foundation had, and I replied immediately saying, I wish we had the average size donation that AEI had. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, it's an amazing and distinguished series of meetings that have been held over these last seven years. And I know that today's speakers will live up to the incredible standards of their predecessors as we enjoy an intellectual feast on the subject of the state of the Constitution. And regarding today's theme... Again, on a personal note, when I served as president of Heritage first time around, the most, most popular kind of gift token that we offered to our 600,000 members was a free copy of the Constitution. As my colleagues here know, I always carry mine around. They get a little ratty after a couple months, so I take another one. But in fact, over those years, we distributed more than 4 million copies of the Constitution. I only had one concern. One year we were in Chicago, and one of our longtime supporters came up to me and she said, oh, Dr. Fulner, thanks so much for sending me a copy of the Heritage Constitution. I said, no, ma'am, that's America's Constitution. It's not the Heritage Constitution. Uh, but we, we're 
we believe very strongly in it. That's why Hans and everyone in our in our Ed Meese Center are such an integral part of everything we do here at Heritage. This is a an incredible and phenomenal panel of experts, and introducing them today and chairing the panels is my longtime senior colleague, Hans von Spasowski. Uh, the Honorable Hans von Spasowski is a former member of the Federal Election Commission, former senior member of the Justice Department staff and the Civil Rights Division, an expert on the First Amendment to the Constitution, on election reform questions, and a host of other important policy issues. He is the author of several books with John Fund, who is here today, on Who's Counting? How Fraudsters and Bureaucrats Put Your Vote at Risk, which was published by Encounter Books, an uh, organization not unknown to the Bradley Foundation, uh, and Obama's Enforcer, Eric Holder's Justice Department, published by HarperCollins in 2014. Hans's bachelor's degree is from MIT. His law degree is from Vanderbilt. It's my very great pleasure to ask Hans, please, to come up and chair today's discussions. Hans. Well, <clears throat> welcome to Heritage Foundation. Uh, we don't always have such exciting beginnings to our workday here, but uh, you had a little bit of that today. Um, the symposium is about the state of the Constitution, and I think we should all uh, remember that it was uh, 231 years ago, September 17, 1787, that uh, 39 very brave men signed a new charter organizing the government of a unique nation. I think the Constitution, and I think all of you would agree, is the greatest political document for freedom ever written. Uh, it's simple, elegant, powerful, and wise. Uh, William Gladstone, the great British Prime Minister, called it, quote, the most wonderful work ever struck off at a given time by the brain and purpose of man. Now, the Constitution has endured for over two centuries, and it remains revered by Americans and admired by people around the world. It's the guardian of our liberty. When it is no longer adhered to, when Congress, the President, and the courts regard it with disdain, we lose our liberties as the rule of law breaks down, and government grows ever stronger and restricts our rights, our liberties, and our freedom. Today, we face multiple serious internal threats to our constitutional Republican form of government. Uh, during the ratification process, many were worried that the new national government would be too powerful. James Madison said, however, that the Constitution would create only a government of strictly limited powers. Uh, would James Madison recognize America today, or would he be horrified at a federal government far larger and more powerful, far more powerful than the English crown that he fought for eight years? The huge expansion of power by Congress, aided and abetted by presidents of both parties, and rubber-stamped by the Supreme Court since the 1930s, has transformed us into a regulatory and administrative behemoth that has enormous power over the everyday lives and livelihoods of individual Americans. Uh, we all see the dangers posed by judges who do not recognize the limits on the power of government and the Constitution, and who use their judicial authority to implement their own public policy choices as if they are super legislatures or a super executive usurping the role of Congress. Uh, we had a president in, eight, in place for eight years who refused to recognize any limits 
on his power or the power of the federal government and engaged in unilateral actions intended to transform America into his version of a progressive utopia where we have a constitution in name only. And we've had a Congress in place for decades that has acted the same way, passing laws, laws far beyond the scope of the limited powers that was granted in the Constitution, and delegating much of its authority to an administrative state that is now the fourth branch of government, composed of powerful independent agencies filled with bureaucrats with the equivalent of lifelong tenure who are unaccountable to the people through our election process. All of these developments share a common characteristic, a view of federal power that is unlimited, unconstrained, and unrestricted. Well, the Bradley Foundation has assembled some of the foremost scholars and practitioners in the country to discuss how far have we strayed from the Constitution and the structural system it set up both to govern our nation and protect the liberty of its people. And what can we do to rein in the power of an overbearing bureaucracy and reinvigorate the rule of law, which is fundamental to a free people? So our first panel, entitled Drowning in Bureaucracy, uh, I'm going to quickly do a very short introduction of our three speakers. Uh, they are all very well known. Uh, you've got a handout that has an extensive biography, and I know you'd rather hear from them uh, then listen to me give you a long biography. Uh, first, we're going to have Christopher DeMuth, a distinguished fellow at the Hudson Institute and former president of one of our sister organizations, the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, he was a former staff assistant to President Richard Nixon and worked for President Ronald Reagan both at OMB and as executive director of President Reagan's Task Force on Regulatory Relief and uh, I think was a Bradley Prize winner last year. Uh, next, we're going to have Robert Alt, who is president and CEO of the Buckeye Institute, one of our most preeminent state-based think tanks. Uh, he's a former director uh, in the Heritage Foundation Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, uh, my former colleague, and he's taught at both Case Western Reserve School of Law and Ashland University. Uh, he was a research assistant to Richard Epstein and clerked for Sixth Circuit Judge Alice Batchelder, Batchelder sorry. Uh, and in 2004, to show you what a varied career he, uh, he has, uh, he spent five months in Iraq as an embedded war correspondent for National Review. Uh, Charles Kessler, uh, last but not least, uh, is a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, where he's the editor of the Claremont Review of Books, as well as the Dangler Dakima Distinguished Professor of Government at Claremont McKenna College. Uh, last year, he was named as one of Politico's 50, which is their annual list of key thinkers, doers, and visionaries reshaping American politics and policy. Uh, he's the author and editor of numerous books, including as co-editor with William F. Buckley of Keeping the Tables, Modern American Conservative Thought. Uh, I'm going to allow each of you, you can choose, you can either speak from the panel or come up to the, to the podium. The subject this morning is the administrative state, and um, uh, I think most people understand what that means, but let me make it clear that I don't think we're going to be talking about government administration, the problems of administering an agency, uh, nor are we going to be decrying the fact that there's too much administration in the state these days. The administrative <clears throat> state is a constitutional pejorative. 
we use it to describe something we do not like. And that is the migration over time of Congress's lawmaking responsibilities to the executive branch, where, the, where uh, regulatory agencies, uh, administrative agencies, the White House itself, uh, that are charged uh, by the Constitution with enforcing the laws, uh, are in fact uh, making the laws, combining law enforcement with law uh, lawmaking, uh, an affront to the order that the uh, framers thought uh, was being created, uh, that, that, that they were creating, uh, created, and one that has uh, led to many proposals for constitutional restoration in recent years. The point that I want to make is that the administrative state, uh, with more and more power vested in the executive branch, is not the creation of the executive branch. It is the creation of the United States Congress. Uh, it is not a matter of executive seizure of powers, but of congressional vesting of powers, handing off of powers to another constitutional branch. One, uh, one could have been forgiven for not seeing that uh, during the Obama years, Every uh, president and every regulatory agency in modern times sometimes oversteps the bounds of the authorities uh, given to them by congressional statutory law. But President Obama and his regulatory agencies made it an open and notorious practice, a matter of routine, something that affected many of the biggest decisions of uh, President Obama's uh, second term, uh, so that many of us thought uh, uh, during his second term that we might be evolving uh, seriously in the direction of a government by presidential uh, decree. The Trump administration, however, has been a return to normalcy, or at least the, uh, 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 at least the situation before the Obama or late Bush administrations, and then some. Uh, not only has the Trump administration uh, withdrawn uh, most of uh, the Obama administration's most uh, brazen extra, extra statutory ventures, such as the Clean Power Plan, uh, but in two uh, critical cases, uh, President Obama's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals uh, decree and his expenditure of billions of dollars on Obamacare cost-sharing expenditures without any congressional appropriations whatsoever. In these two cases, uh, he has uh, uh, withdrawn them and sent them back to Congress. And uh, he has essentially said, you know, Monday he says one thing, Tuesday's another, but on certain days he has said uh, that he would be uh, perfectly happy uh, to enforce those policies if they were embraced by the United States Congress as statutory law uh, as part of a larger package of health care in the one case, uh, immigration in the other case, uh, policies that he is in favor of. Um, I'd like to take a little step back uh, and then get to the point that President uh, Trump has brought us to. I said that this is a congressional creation. I think that a lot of the uh, seizures of the Obama years, and we could go back and find some in the Bush years uh, as well, were simply going with the flow of congressional delegation of lawmaking power to the executive branch. So I think they were wrong, but in a sense they were understandable. Uh, it is a very old story. Uh, we often uh, talk of the uh, progressive era 
uh, the late 19th and early 20th century uh, as being guided by Woodrow Wilson uh, progressivism uh, with some borrowings from uh, Hegel and uh, Max Weber uh, in uh, Germany uh, of uh, this uh, conceit that government could be apolitical, expert, neutral, uh, and it should be done by administration in substitution uh, for the parochial, ignorant uh, views of people in an elected uh, legislature. But that's actually not what happened. We talk about it as if it was, but the early regulatory agencies were all creatures of the Congress, beginning with the Interstate Commerce Commission. That was not a presidential initiative. That was a, con that was a congressional initiative. Uh, and even when uh, Roosevelt and uh, Wilson came on the scene, they provided a lot of rhetorical support uh, and enforcement, uh, but the heavy lifting was all done in uh, Congress. And these agencies were not expert, neutral, apolitical bodies. They were not part of the executive branch. They were supposed to be independent. They were supposed to report to Congress. Uh, they had a bipartisan uh, commission at the top. They were highly porous uh, to uh, lobbying uh, influence. They were populist uh, rather than Max Weberian uh, institutions. Uh, uh, President Wilson's uh, great, supposed great progressive triumph of the Federal Reserve Act uh, was a thoroughly congressional written document. Uh, it was not neutral expertise. It had written in rules for banks. It had written in rules for regional interests in different congressional uh, districts around the country. When the New Deal came along, uh, the many new regulatory agencies were very much the proposals of the executive branch, President uh, FDR and his uh, New Dealers, but they simply borrowed the progressive era template for these independent agencies uh, reporting to Congress. When we got to the next phase of regulatory growth in the 1970s, uh, the health, safety, and environmental regulatory agencies, EPA, NHTSA, OSHA, EEOC, CSPC, and many, many more, they were all works of Congress. Presidential involvement in the creation of these institutions uh, was uh, quite, uh, quite incidental. Um, and these were a dramatic departure. These were not uh, uh, the New Deal and progressive agencies adjudicated specific issues. Uh, they would decide whether uh, uh, a motor, uh, a truck could, a uh, trucking company could carry shoes from Lowell, Massachusetts to, um, uh, to Fort uh, Wayne, Indiana. The answer would usually be no, uh, but they were very narrow decisions. The new agencies acted through rulemaking, uh, where they could uh, order the installation of pollution control gear, safety gear. Uh, their decisions uh, made through informal rulemaking, a, a legislative type activity, uh, could have effects of hundreds of billions of dollars uh, throughout uh, large economic uh, sectors. Um, this is where a highly discretionary, highly powerful uh, executive branch, which was ex exercising de facto lawmaking power, uh, came into uh, being. 
the congressional delegation of lawmaking that began in the early 1970s is increasingly uh, seen as part of broader constitutional abdications during this same period from the early 70s to today involving the abandonment of fiscal discipline, uh, uh, failing to make appropriations, moving much uh, spending to uh, automatic entitlements, uh, even in recent years uh, uh, giving the executive branch power over taxation and, po and borrowing. Some people like it. Uh, progressive law professors uh, write uh, journal articles uh, extolling the uh, super superiority of uh, executive branch uh, policy making, uh, but it has also led to a powerful uh, counter movement. Uh, there is a judicial side of it, uh, represented by Philip Hamburger, who uh, received one of the uh, Bradley uh, Prizes uh, last year, uh, uh, criticizing the constitutionality of the uh, executive uh, state. Uh, Naomi Rao, who is President Trump's uh, head of uh, the, essentially his deregulation czarina uh, at the uh, White House, uh, has contributed uh, distinguished uh, academic work uh, to uh, the subject of uh, the uh, constitutional authority of Congress to delegate to the executive branch and calling for stricter uh, standards in that regard. It has also led to a robust congressional reform movement. Uh, the Federalist Society, another uh, Bradley uh, laureate, uh, has an Article I initiative uh, to reform. They've, they've done a lot to reform Article Three and Article Two. Now they want to take on Article I. Uh, the R Street Institute, a, a, a spunky, uh, very good young uh, think tank, has a congressional reform uh, movement. Uh, this movement wants to resurrect Congress as a constitutional lawmaking body. Uh, through such devices as the so-called RAINS Act, which would subject major executive branch regulations uh, to the, uh, would say that they could not go into uh, effect uh, until they were uh, approved by both houses of uh, Congress, uh, beefed up professional staffs, uh, the creation of new uh, offices on regulatory and scientific affairs in Congress on the model of the Congressional Budget Office, uh, not too popular at uh, Heritage, I might uh, guess, uh, a revival of the uh, committee hierarchies where uh, the substantive authorizing committees with powerful chairmen rather than a small group of uh, uh, party leaders uh, has uh, real power throughout uh, the Congress uh, to make law. Uh, substantial uh, revival, maybe to the point of abolition, of the Senate uh, filibuster uh, hold other uh, supermajority rules uh, that uh, empower uh, small minorities. It's something of a movement, uh, but the striking thing about it is this. Congress itself does not seem to be part of it. Uh, Congress does not seem to be interested in reviving its constitutional uh, powers. Most members seem to be content with things as they are. Uh, Senator Mike Lee has a terrific uh, congressional uh, reform uh, program. I think he's got maybe three or four other senators that are interested in it. Uh, the others are not. Uh, similarly, in the House, it's a very, very vanishingly small number of people that care about constitutional uh, reform. The fact is that lawmaking and budgeting are hard work. 
It's very difficult. You have to compromise. Nobody wants to compromise. If you're going to pass a law, you have to fashion compromise. You have to make difficult decisions that are hard to uh, explain. Uh, it's much better to throw political hot potatoes to the executive branch and then stand back and either criticize or applaud what the executive branch does uh, and uh, adopt a new business model to getting reelected, uh, which is to lobby uh, the executive branch as a sort of official lobbyist with badge uh, uh, and uh, to try to get the executive branch to do uh, what you want. Uh, I, they get to spend more personal time on talk shows, uh, social media. Uh, they can strut and fret on the national uh, stage, along with executive branch officials, take very strong uh, positions, uh, but have shorter and shorter work weeks, two-and-a-half-day work weeks. And they don't really have to, especially in the Senate, they don't really have to do very much uh, anymore. Um, I think that uh, am I through with my time? Uh, <laughs> pretty much. Yes. Pretty much through with my time. Um, but you can filibuster if you want. <laughs> I, uh, I think that co Congress has evolved in response to big changes in modern society uh, and politics in a very rich, technologically adept uh, society. Many, many more people are political activists uh, and p participants. Uh, many, many more issues are moved uh, in public sentiment from private and local matters to uh, national uh, matters. Congress is more and more overwhelmed uh, with many more issues uh, to uh, resolve uh, than a, uh, a representative legislature bicameral institution could possibly do. Uh, their solution to modern politics has been not to stand up to the, de to the demands for increasing intervention, but to create more and more agencies and tell them to deal with it. Uh, agencies are specialized, they're hierarchical, they're efficient, they're agencies of governmental growth, and they can be uh, multiplied essentially uh, without, uh, without limit. Uh, the difficulty is that Congress has enormous formal powers. They, constitutionally, they basically have all the marbles when it comes to uh, policy making, but they don't have any responsibilities. They don't have to actually do anything. Uh, the executive is commanded by the Constitution uh, to uh, uh, faithfully enforce the laws uh, and protect and defend the Constitution. Uh, judges are obliged by professional norms to settle cases and controversies that come before them and to write opinions that explain why they have decided in a certain way to bench bar and the general public. But a member of Congress only takes orders from the voters. He doesn't have, the Constitution gives him a lot of powers, but nothing to do except to get uh, reelected. Uh, to, uh, to be responsive to the voters sufficiently to get reelected is really the only responsibility. You don't have to hold hearings. You don't have to pass a budget. Never, it doesn't say any place that you have to pass laws. You don't have to, you don't have to do uh, anything. So it is a reactive uh, institution. I think that reform will have to take, will not come from within, but will have to come from the outside, something like the Reins proposal, 
uh, uh, candidate Romney and candidate Trump both said that even without reins, they would start uh, sending matters up to uh, Congress and uh, desist from issuing major new rules. Uh, uh, even if the reins statute wasn't on the book, uh, they would simply say, here is a regulation I intend to implement, uh, uh, and you have 60 days to approve it or disapprove it. Now, there are many variations on this. Uh, when the president comes to issue uh, the new EPA substitute for the clean power plan, eventually they're going to have to say something about global warming. Uh, they're going to say something about cafe standards, fuel economy standards. There are a lot of big decisions coming up. There's no reason why the president could not simply say, send it up to Congress, here's this regulation. If you don't, if both houses don't approve it in 60 days, I'm not going to issue it. Or he could say, you have 60 days to veto it. He could essentially recreate a one-house legislative veto by saying, I'm not going to issue this rule until, uh, Congress e until Congress either makes a positive or a, a negative decision. I don't think this is going to be real popular in the Congress. Uh, the president has sent up a bunch of rescissions in the past week, spending rescissions. They really don't like this. You know, they're going to have to actually make some decisions on uh, chip appropriations and uh, so forth. Uh, Senator Lee has proposed, everybody was sort of amazed, the president can change tariffs on aluminum all by himself? Well, you look at the law, yeah, yeah, the president can do that. So Mike Lee says, okay, Here's a law that says the president can't change individual tariffs without approval from Congress. And everybody in Congress who'd been complaining about this usurpation and why is Trump doing this? He's going to start a trade war. So Mike Lee says, okay, let's decide this for ourselves. Everybody says, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> so I think if the president takes this advice, it's going to be difficult. The first steps in a self-improvement plan uh, is rarely uh, easy uh, or fun. Uh, so it's going to have to come uh, from the outside, but we need to start making those steps. Thank you. <clears throat> now Robert Alt. And he did, Robert did want me to tell you all that, no, he was not the founder of the alt-right movement. <laughs> <laughs> but I do get a nickel every time you say it. <laughs> I'd like to begin by thanking the Bradley Foundation for holding this colloquia and inviting me to speak on this important topic, the Heritage Foundation for providing this wonderful venue, and the protesters for making me feel so much at home. <laughs> I, I was listening to some of their chants on the way in, and they, they're very concerned about the Constitution and rights, and it struck me that you know, they'd clearly come to the right place. They were... They, were, they must have been concerned, in fact, about the usurpations of civil liberties that are affected by the behemoth that is the administrative state. So they've come to the right place. And it inspired me to, to go back and take begin start at the beginning, talk about the, the constitutional foundations and what it is uh, that uh, uh, our order is supposed to do, where we've gotten off track, and where there might actually be hope for some reform. Uh, so in Federalist 47, James Madison observed that the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary, in the same hands, whether of one, a few, or many, may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. To protect against this risk, the founders drafted a constitution that divided powers, granting to Congress enumerated legislative power, to the president the executive power, and to the courts the judicial power. 
The constitutional system devised by the founders was not built to promote efficiency. It was built to protect liberty. Students familiar with America's constitutional history are then faced with a conundrum provided by the countless acronyms that populate this town. Take, for example, the granddaddy of federal agencies, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, founded in 1914. The FTC promulgates regulations which have the force of law to bind individuals, the exercise of legislative power. But the members of the FTC are not elected pursuant to requirements of Article I, that, that section of the Constitution which governs Congress, and the regulations do not meet Article I's requirements of bicameralism and presentment. The FTC then investigates violations of the very regulations that the FTC itself drafted and brings enforcement actions for alleged violations, quintessentially executive powers. The FTC then hears complaints issued by the commission for violations of regulations drafted by the commission, uh, the quintessential exercise of judicial power, despite the fact that the administrative law judges lack life tenure, fixed compensation, or confirmation to an Article III court. And thus, and thus, in one agency, we have legislative, executive, and judicial powers commingled. Or take the Consumer Finance Protection Board, an agency designed to be so independent uh, that it is funded not by Congress directly, but by the Federal Reserve, uh, and its head is removable only for cause. Indeed, it is so independent that when Director Mulvaney, acting Director Mulvaney recently appeared before Congress, he took the opportunity to remind uh, both the House and the Senate that given his independence, he could ignore any and all of their questions so he ch should he so choose to do so. Uh, that was received quite well. <laughs> uh, the founders knew that such a gradual slide to consolidation of power was a risk. In Federalist 51, the founders argued that, quote, the great security against a gradual concentration of the several powers in the same department consists in giving to those who administer each department the necessary constitutional means and personal motives to resist encroachments of the others, end quote. Or, to put it more bluntly, ambition must be made to counteract ambition. But as Chris DeMuth has ably demonstrated, Congress has become a co-conspirator rather than a zealous guardian of its own prerogatives. And the court, through deference to agency determination, has done little better. Indeed, Congress and the courts have developed a level of codependency that, to use the parlance of modern times, requires therapy. <laughs> Why is such a strong remedy necessary? Going back to Madison, because the concentration of power leads to tyranny. Now, words like tyranny sound a little bit strange or extreme to our modern ears, uh, and so instead let's say that it leads to the denial of civil rights and civil liberties. And here the examples are myriad. Take, for example, free speech. The Federal Election Commission promulgates and enforces regulations that restrict free speech. Just last month, in Federal Election Commission versus Jeremy Johnson and John Swallow, a district court struck down the Federal Election Commission's regulation which created liability for an individual who gave advice to another individual accused of making an unlawful contribution. 
despite the fact that Congress did not authorize the agency to create such aiding and abetting liability. Or let's look at freedom of religion. In Burwell versus Hobby Lobby stores, for example, the mandate that was successfully challenged under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was a regulation issued by HHS. In each of these cases, the regulations were shielded from the political checks provided by the formal legislative process, that of bicameralism and presentment, by virtue of their, their being adopted by an agency uh, through agency rulemaking. Worse still, however, is in the, it is not merely that the regulations impaired the rights, but the enforcement of those regulations denied due process. The agencies offer less protections than courts um, uh, with regard to due process. The defenders of, of such agency action argue that due process is simply a limit on the courts, the weight of Anglo-American law on the subject, to the contrary notwithstanding. They further argue that lesser process is acceptable in the administrative context, despite the fact that fines and penalties are issued in these administrative proceedings, oftentimes mimicking some sort of quasi-criminal uh, prosecution. Uh, for even more disturbing with regard to civil rights and civil liberties is the fact that jury rights guaranteed by both the Constitution and, and existing as a fixture of Anglo-American law are non-existent within the agency context and are available only in the courts. These threats to liberty are exacerbated by the court's subsequent deference to agency interpretations. Under the Chevron doctrine, courts defer to agencies' interpretation of arguably ambiguous statutes, or even worse, under our deference, uh, the the courts functionally allow agencies to change the rules of the game midstream by granting deference to ambiguities uh, that agencies find in regulations which they draft. Uh, since I believe that I'm the only representative of a state-focused organization, I should note that the threat administrative law poses to civil rights and civil liberties is not limited to federal law. The states have gotten in on the fun as well. Just remember that one of the big cases before the Supreme Court this term, Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission, which raises issues of anti-discrimination law, religious liberties, and free speech, was originally decided by an administrative law judge in Colorado. After this bleak assessment of the state of constitutional affairs, I offer something one rarely receives in Washington, let alone from a lawyer. Hope. There is growing skepticism to judicial deference to agency interpretation. I say this standing on the same stage where Judge Carlos Bea of the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit in 2015 delivered the Joseph Story Distinguished Lecture in which he offered this modest proposal. Let's junk Chevron. Uh, and Justice Gorsuch's addition to the Supreme Court adds another skeptical voice about Chevron to that court. The intellectual case has been greatly advanced by Bradley Prize winner Philip Hamburger. In 2014, Hamburger wrote the provocative, Is Administrative Law Unlawful? At the risk of hurting Professor Hamburger's book sales, I'll offer you a spoiler. 
Yes. <laughs> but Hamburger's interest in this topic was not merely academic. And I say that uh, noting that by saying merely, I recognize I've offended every PhD in the room. Uh, he formed the New Civil Liberties Alliance to litigate such questions and to advance the cause of reforming the administrative state. Uh, but perhaps the most promising uh, uh, possibilities exist because of the moment in time in which we find ourselves. While judicial nominations have become increasingly partisan, the one area where progressive, progressives praised Gorsuch during his confirmation hearings was his skepticism of judicial deference to executive agency interpretation. And the very same members of Congress who were quite enamored by the independence of the CFPB under prior administrations find such independence exercised by Mr. Mulvaney to be disturbing. It took Nixon to go to China, and perhaps it will take Donald Trump to prompt Congress and the courts to act as co-equal branches rather than co-dependent ones. Thank you. Good morning, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Let me add my thanks as well uh, to the Bradley Foundation for convening uh, this symposium and to the uh, Heritage Foundation for hosting it. It's always good to be back in the house that Ed Fulner built <clears throat> with the able assistance of that other Ed, Ed Meese, uh, whom we are uh, thinking of um, uh, today. My <laughs> two Eds are better than one. Um, my topic today is uh, uh, constitutional decline, which is a pretty sexy topic, I think you have to admit. Uh, <clears throat> from, uh, from Plato to Publius, uh, the author of the Federalist Papers, the old political scientists were keen students of political change, including political decline. Uh, you might even say they were connoisseurs of constitutional decline, so much so that Plato, <clears throat> in his Republic, when he came to discuss the, the um, subject of political change, discussed only political decline. From his best regime to the next best regime to the next best regime to democracy, and finally to tyranny, and there was no way back. It was a one-way one street. It was all decline all the way down. Um, it turns out, of course, this is an accurate constitutional history of the United States um, in, in many respects, but it's not a, a cheery prospect if we can't figure out a way to reverse decline as well. Well, that isn't the problem in political science today. Um, where the subject of political decline has been sadly neglected. In the final three decades of the 20th century, we saw a period of what appeared to be, and was for a while, a sweeping advance for liberal democracy all around the world, what Sam Huntington called the third wave of democracy, swept over country after country, each one more unlikely than the last to have become democratic. For a while, Russia, Turkey, Mongolia, 
Korea, of course, the Philippines, Nigeria, Chile, Brazil, scores of countries that had not been democratic suddenly became democracies. Philosophical observers like Francis Fukuyama discerned what he called the end of history, a, a process of Hegelianization. Uh, I wanted to get that word in. Uh, <clears throat> Um, a, a process whereby liberal democracy would prove to be the last, the final form of human government. It would be democracies all the way out uh, to the end of time. Political scientists, being less imaginative than Fukuyama, turned this optimistic moment into a theory which they called democratic consolidation. Uh, this was a theory designed to explain how these new democracies <clears throat> would inevitably mature into stable, prosperous, and liberal states, even as the old Anglophone democracies had done in the 19th century and the early 20th century. But the first decades of the 21st century have not been uh, kind to this democratic tide. It has ebbed. Young liberal democracies have lost their promise, uh, most spectacularly in Russia and in Turkey, but elsewhere as well. Uh, and political scientists discovered a powerful wave of populism, or what is sometimes called authoritarian populism, uh, rushing in as democracy ebbed. A young Harvard political scientist writes now of what he calls democratic deconsolidation, of formerly solid regimes slipping gradually away, as in Hungary and Poland and the Philippines. And it isn't only at Harvard that alarm is raised over developments among quite mature free governments, Brexit in Britain, Marine Le Pen in France, Donald Trump in the White House. The older political science would not have been surprised by the need to measure decline as well as advance, to deal with decay as well as growth, disease as well as health. Plato and Aristotle and many others taught that everything that comes into being passes sooner or later out of being. Rousseau asked, if Sparta and Rome perished, what state can hope to survive? Political regimes uh, differ in their strengths and weaknesses, but often their deepest weakness is another feature of their greatest strength or their most obvious characteristic. Every regime has a view of justice which it holds and incorporates into its laws, but this is a partial view that gives a pronounced bias to the habits, opinions, and ordinances of each country. A great legislator's or statesman's task was thought to be, in part at least, to correct his society's bias, to make more complete its partial view of justice, thus to stabilize its politics and make its regime more enduring because less partisan. What Aristotle and Cicero sought in the mixed regime, uh, George Washington and James Madison and Alexander Hamilton tried to achieve in America's own Republican government. Now, 
There are many signs today. The intense polarization of our politics is only the most obvious one. That in the United States, we live in an age of constitutional decline. An era when we, uh, when we need, I think, to begin to look to the health of the Constitution uh, itself. I think we are in an era when we cannot simply presume that the Constitution will keep our politics just and moderate. We have to make political efforts to rescue the Constitution itself from a century of criticism, decay, and transformation. Uh, in the magazine that I edit, the Claremont Review, we have described <clears throat> our current political life uh, as a cold civil war. A cold civil war is better than a hot or a shooting civil war, but it is not a good situation for a country to be in. Underlying <clears throat> this cold civil war, I think, is the fact that increasingly America is torn uh, between two constitutions. Uh, we face, in fact, a kind of crisis of two constitutions. Political scientists sometimes distinguish between normal politics and regime politics. Normal politics are politics that take place within a political order, <clears throat> within a constitution, uh, and they're about means, not ends. Regime politics is about who rules, what are the purposes of the rule, what is the nature of the political system itself, who has rights, who has votes, and for what, uh, what ends. Uh, I think increasingly American politics looks to be leaving the world of normal politics and traveling towards the world of regime politics in which it's really <clears throat> two constitutions that suspend, are suspended over us and that are dividing our political loyalties. One of these constitutions is what Hamilton called the limited constitution or, or what we call the original constitution as amended. This is the constitution of natural right, the constitution that uh, was written originally in 1787 and, uh, and has been transmitted to us over the years. We can call this the conservatives constitution. But the other constitution uh, is what the liberals <clears throat> have for a hundred years called, quite candidly, the living constitution. Um, the living constitution implies that the other constitution is a dead constitution, or at least is on life support, uh, and that it must be transformed, it must be infused with new meaning and new ends, and to some degree even new means and institutions in order to be kept alive, in order to be um, a vital uh, part of our politics. Um, we hear about the living constitution, of course, every time there's a Supreme Court vacancy, because uh, the question of judicial philosophy comes up, and the question is, you know, they bring a liberal justice in, and they ask him, do you believe in the living constitution? And, of course, he says, no, I don't believe in the living constitution, <clears throat> or if I do believe in it, I believe in it only as a way of reading the original constitution. It's, uh, it's a guidebook to the original constitution. Um, well, it is that, but it 
it, it is much more than that. And it was really meant from the very beginning. Woodrow Wilson was one of the first to use the term a living constitution. It was meant from the beginning to be a substitute for the original constitution, not um, an, an aid memoir or a, a guide to interpretation. Um, it did not begin in law schools. It began in schools of political science, in departments of sociology, history, and economics. It was at, at the very forefront of progressive political science a hundred years ago. Uh, and it was not a doctrine just to infuse meaning into the judiciary. It was a doctrine for the president, for the Congress, and for the judiciary, for the whole Constitution. It was a doctrine to <clears throat> bring hope and change to American politics by transforming the meaning of the Constitution, the spirit in which the Constitution was interpreted. You couldn't get rid of the original Constitution. Wilson, as a very young man, had actually proposed that we amend it so substantially as to change it into a kind of parliamentary system. But he quickly realized that that plan was going nowhere. He had, however, plan B. And plan B was the living constitution. We would keep the institutions of the old, but totally transform the spirit in which they were understood. We would work, we would pour old, a new wine into those old bottles. Um, the new constitution, the liberals constitution, the living constitution, is not a constitution of natural right, but of historical right or evolutionary right. When Woodrow Wilson um, described the living constitution, he used the term Darwinian. Uh, he's one of the few presidents to speak favorably of Charles Darwin uh, and to recommend him as a guide to the political science and the political philosophy of the country. He wanted a constitution that, far from being um, unchange, as unchanging as possible, uh, far from being as difficult to, change, to amend as possible, he wanted a constitution that was easy to change, that could uh, mutate with the times, that could adjust to the spirit of the times. And so whereas you could say a formula for the old constitution was um, it, it was unchanging precisely because it was designed to keep the times in tune with the constitution. Um, the new constitution is designed to keep the, the constitution in tune with the times as much as possible. But the first modern, modern liberals, the progressives, expected the living constitution to replace the original constitution gradually, peacefully, almost uh, unnoticeably. They expected a kind of convergence. They were not revolutionaries, they were evolutionaries. And they thought by a gradual process of convergence, the new constitution would emerge out of the body of the old. And that really was the story of American politics and jurisprudence until the 1960s, when something unexpected happened. Unexpected by liberals, that is. What happened was that the defenders of the old constitution began to fight back. Called by many names, conservatism, originalism, natural law, jurisprudence, the new institutionalism, Straussianism, the conservatives who 
began an epic campaign against the inevitable uh, emergence of the living constitution had in common the desire, the duty, to oppose the gradual disappearance of limited government from American political life. When it became clear in the 50s and especially in the 60s that the surrender was off, the Cold Civil War was on. And progressives had to sharpen their own accounts of the living constitution, had to radicalize it in order to oppose the new, sharper accounts of the original constitution that began to emerge from America's universities and law schools. So if one looks quickly today at American politics, I think you see a nation torn between the two constitutions, in effect. Uh, Hence, we are two countries, or potentially two countries. There is a liberal doctrine of rights, which traces individual rights to different uh, groups or to different stages of uh, civilizational advance. Um, That was present already 100 years ago in progressivism. It's, It's still present now in affirmative action law and in other large stretches of the law. And you have an individual account of rights in the uh, conservative constitution, which seeks to uh, cabin these these group rights and to uh, empty them of meaning. There's a liberal First Amendment, and there is a conservative uh, First Amendment. Uh, Liberals are very interested now in making free speech equal speech. That is, making sure that you don't get more than your share of free speech. And that means things like uh, campaign contributions, Citizens United. I don't need to um, hit every uh, item of that agenda, but it is a very vital and active agenda in the law journals as well as uh, in the courts. As you know, there is a big difference between conservative freedom of religion and what is increasingly the liberals' desired freedom from religion. Um, we know that the, where there's one big difference between the two constitutions, the liberals has no second amendment. <laughs> and as Krista Muth and, uh, and, and Rob Alt were saying, uh, increasingly there is a liberal constitution in which the branches of government are, desi- are designed to be coordinated, to reinforce one another, not to be separated and to have their power uh, limited. Uh, We have a Congress increasingly unable to legislate. We have an increasingly powerful and centralized government and an increasingly illegitimate one at the same time. Um, How is it possible to resolve this cold civil war without turning it into something much worse? Well, I think there there are really uh, only five possible paths forward. Uh, One is to change the subject. Um, Ronald Reagan used to to say that when the little green men arrive, (laughs) you know, all of our political differences will be abolished and humanity will really stand together for the first time. Well, if that happens, we're we're off the hook for the cold civil war. Um, If we can't change the subject, we could change our minds. Uh, That is, a second possibility is persuasion. 
perhaps one side will persuade a majority of the electorate um, to embrace its constitution, and one side will win. Um, Republicans have for many, gener- many generations now longed for a realigning election which would turn Republican conservatism into the majority party and the majority faith of the country. That is certainly still possible, although uh, it looks, I think, still unlikely. However, if we won't change our minds and we can't change the subject, um, then I think there are only three other possible ways out of the Cold Civil War. One, of course, is a reinvigorated federalism. One of the reasons why we had federalism in the Constitution in the first place was because the states had many disagreements about their interests and about what, indeed, to some degree, was right or wrong. Uh, if, if we had a flowering of federalism, many of the differences between blue states and red states could be handled in that way. But the problem is we have gone so far down the road uh, away from an invigorated federalism that it's hard to see how it could come to our rescue uh, at this juncture. Uh, that leaves only two possibilities, two other possibilities. One, of course, is secession. Um, uh, this, this word always uh, uh, brings joy in Washington when you, when you mention this. Um, to, uh, but now to conservatives and liberals alike. Uh, Uh, It's possible that we could agree to disagree in separate countries, Um, although that would be extremely difficult because secession, as we know from our history, leads to the fifth and final possibility, war. Um, It's possible to have secession without war in any federal system. As James Madison would tell you, secession is always a problem or a potential problem. Uh, It is also a solution to some problems, uh, but it is not a recommendation and war even less so. Um, Where the subject of constitutional decline ends up, therefore, it seems to me, is in some form of crisis, a crisis of the two constitutions, uh, a crisis towards which I think we are are approaching, if not yet hurtling, uh, but which has no very good end um, uh, available uh, to us, I'm afraid. A good reason to try to return to the sanity and the wisdom uh, of the founders themselves and to try to think our way and fight our way back to the original Constitution. Thank you. All right, well, on that optimistic note, um, (laughs) we we do have time for some questions. I'm I'm going to take the moderator's uh, privilege by asking the first one, if I may, and that is, um, look, part of this discussion is about the bureaucracy, particularly within administrative agencies, and uh, yet I I hardly ever hear anyone in Washington talking about uh, civil service reform and, frankly, getting rid of the rules that allow this permanent tenured bureaucracy to sit in Washington, which is basically 99% of the the workforce, and perhaps do what, uh, for example, uh, Georgia did back when the governor was Zell Miller, who you all may recall once challenged uh, Chris Matthews to a duel, um, (laughs) where they got rid of the rules and made uh, state employees live under the same rules that all of us live under, which is to be at-will employees. And I wonder what you think about that idea of civil service reform. Well, there is a um, uh, there is a, a movement 
uh, for civil service reform. Uh, its manifesto is an article by uh, Philip Howard of uh, Common Cause, of, of uh, Com Common Good, uh, early in the uh, Trump administration. Uh, it, uh, it, it's, it, it, is, it is quite bold. Uh, it uh, argues that a good part of the existing civil service system is unconstitutional. Um, <clears throat> uh, I, th I think that uh, uh, it is possible that President <clears throat> Trump will pick up on elements of this reform movement. Uh, uh, there's also a, uh, a little uh, group uh, that uh, meets at the uh, Washington uh, Hoover uh, offices of uh, senior executive service, uh, a kind of a, a dirty little secret is that the senior members of the bureaucracy would love to see uh, it uh, possible to fire uh, incompetent uh, or uh, abusive or simply absent employees, which is completely uh, impossible today. Uh, so uh, th there are some genuine practical uh, reform uh, possibilities. Uh, the president has not uh, embraced them, but I could, he'd be just the kind of guy to do it at some point in his term. Anybody else? No. All right. Uh, we, we have time for questions, and what I'd ask you to do is wait for the uh, microphone to get to you. And um, if you would, please just identify yourself and please ask a question. <laughs> uh, oh, right, right here in the front. Chris, uh, Roman Bueller with the Madison Coalition. You talked about an outside force needed to persuade Congress to, to reign in the administrative state. What is your view of the effort now that has been endorsed by 27 state legislative chambers and a unanimous vote of the RNC with the approval of the White House to persuade Congress to propose a constitutional version of the Reigns Act called the Regulation Freedom Amendment? And is the idea that states might be able to force Congress to propose an amendment without a convention in the way that the Bill of Rights or the 17th, uh, 17th Amendment or the uh, presidential term limits uh, were brought about? I think it's a fine idea, and it is uh, completely in keeping with my, my general view, which is that congressional reform is not going to come from inside the institution. It will come from the outside. Okay. You, you had a question, right? Right here in the front. Uh, Pat English, uh, Bradley Foundation Board. Um, Robert, I wondered if you could uh, address uh, federalism and uh, in the context of trying to avoid uh, uh, Charles Kessler's third, or fourth and fifth uh, alternative. <laughs> uh, certainly, no. I, I, I think I think there certainly I. I I guess I should say I share some of Charles's pessimism with regard to uh, he, he seemed he, he seemed to take be taken aback at that, but uh, as to potential options. But I think if you take a look at where genuine reforms are actually coming from uh, in recent days, it really is from the states, and you do see more of a percolating upward with regard to that. So it's not it's not by accident that I talked about some of the excesses that that have permeated the federal system being adopted by the state system. Uh, and so one of the things I think you could see is an extrinsic pressure backwards from the states. If you began to see reforms of the 
uh, of the regulatory state at the state level. And you see, you've seen some proposals to that effect, the equivalent of RAINS Acts at the state level, the equivalent of something like the Congressional Review Act, uh, which was uh, authored by uh, Congressman McIntosh and by Todd Gaziano, who's here, uh, at, at state level. So you see some of these things where I could see that actually being an impetus for potential reforms using this sort of laboratory of democracy uh, methodology um, to try and, again, put pressure back on the feds to actually get their house in order. Clayton. Cleta Mitchell, member of the Bradley Board. This is such a lofty conversation for those of us who are engaged an awful lot of the time in political warfare. So I'm glad to be with these high-minded uh, sort of discussions. But I want to I turn back to what, something that Chris talked about, about Congress. I don't think we talk very much about the role that uh, this, this really sordid situation that has evolved in Congress, in which those who come to Congress who try to challenge the status quo, who say, gee, I really don't like what's going on, they get punished. They don't, money that uh, should flow to help their reelection is literally cut off by the leaders, so that all of the people that we would look to as uh, people that we admire, and why aren't they doing more and all, they are punished, and there are internal systems in place to keep anyone from stepping out of the prescribed sphere of just keeping your head down and doing what the leadership tells you. I mean, there are, I, I, I think that it, the loss of the ability of the representative branch of government to function is the biggest threat to our democracy. And I think that we as conservatives need to be about the business of exposing and doing something about uh, whatever we can do to deal with the fact that they are no one, the real debate doesn't happen. Someone did a, a General Meese, I think, and I work on a project every week, and someone did a, an analysis of all the votes taken in the Senate this year and that the Senate has actually voted on one amendment. One. So that so here's my question. How can we, those of you who are great thinkers, how can you do more to expose the reality it's uh, of what's really going on in Congress? How you know how how can we do bring more pressure to bear on the Congress and congressional leaders to actually restore the Article One powers of, uh, which I think are basically being eliminated for all the reasons you've talked about. Uh, I share your, the views that preceded your question entirely. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I would like uh, to see, I, I'm just, um, I can't give you the, a, kind of a fantastic answer, something that you haven't thought of. Uh, but, you know, we have a big uh, institutional presence of think tanks in Washington, which we didn't have in the past, and I would like to see them uh, shift to this problem of Congress massively uh, and make the institutional reform of Congress a central uh, matter. Uh, as I said, the Federalist Society, R Street Institute, they're starting, but these are just little sprouts coming up through the concrete. Um, and But there are some great ideas. At the Federalist Society, for example, uh, we're going to start a 
Congress Anonymous blog where people <laughs> can actually post, you know, uh, uh, information about the, what's actually happening behind the scenes that people don't see to make it more of a, a matter of, uh, of public debate. Um, uh, this business about what the Senate actually does when they actually hold a vote. One of, one of the reasons that I'm emphasizing this idea of the president taking some hot potatoes and sending them back uh, and saying, you know, here's what I propose to do, uh, veto it, or I will only do it if you say to go ahead, it's to force people in Congress to actually start voting again. Um, and there are flaws in my proposal. There's a lot to, uh, to debate. But I'd just like to have many more represent electoral Electoral, you know, people that have been elected by the people have to stand up and vote one, yay or nay, and just kind of get used to that practice again. Go ahead. Yeah, I would say too. Um, I mean, there have been uh, very uh, bad periods in American politics and in American government fairly recently. If you think of the 1970s, um, the example of Ronald Reagan. Uh, the example of Rudy Giuliani in New York showed that it was possible to reform these systems that seemed to be on their last legs and that seemed to be running uh, downhill. Uh, it was the conservative movement uh, in its healthy prime in the 1970s, in a sense, and in the, in the 1980s, which provided the intellectual firepower for most of the reforms uh, that Giuliani and Reagan carried out. Um, the, the, the reality that's uh, emerging in our politics and dominating our politics today of populism um, is uh, in some sense um, a, uh, a version of that conservative movement. But it's not the same. It's not the old conservative movement. And one, it, it's not clear whether populism is a form of political health uh, or uh, a, it will contribute to political decay? I think that's the great question in a way that dominates our politics right now. I look at it as a hopeful uh, sign. I think the Tea Party was an extremely uh, hopeful development. But the let's face it, the, the Tea Party's importunings basically fell on deaf ears in the Republican Party and, and to some extent even in the conservative um, establishment. And so the, the great question for our politics is, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, as pessimistic as Rob thinks I am, maybe, but um, uh, it, it seems to me that uh, what has to happen is that this populist movement that, has, that Trump has helped to begin has to take a constitutionalist turn, because the only way that people can really get control of their government back again is to re-energize the constitutional system. They have to recover that. This, this has to be a populism that is pro-constitution and pro-law. Uh, and I, it is so far. I mean, that's what the, the remarkable thing about the Tea Party, despite what the left and the scholars have written about it ever since, is that it was a thoroughly pro-constitutional movement. And so that is, in some ways the greatest sign of encouragement, I think, on the political horizon, that the people themselves seem to recognize that there's something fundamentally wrong with their government. And they want to, re re to fix it, they want to return it to health, but the problem is how. 
And that is, it's the how question that is really plaguing our politics right now. All right, but if I can Robert, jump in with yeah. just a, one additional comment to that. I think that a big issue that Kalita is pointing to is how the current system results in a lack of political accountability functionally in terms of how government operates. And one of the things that I think is useful to understand with regard to administrative law that this is this is not by accident but by design. Uh, to quote the political philosopher Tim McGraw, uh, you don't have to dig very far to get dirt on the progressives on this particular issue. The, the design, in fact, was to make sure that the right people were making the decisions. And I, I say right people in the worst sense of the term. I mean, they, you know, they did so to exclude minorities. They did so to exclude those who had different views. It was an attempt to assure that the right elites were making the political decisions and were insulated from political checks which might be exercised against them. Uh, to that end, I think some of the things that actually were discussed here uh, again provide some hope, which is to say if you take a look at you know, some of the the excesses of the Obama administration in terms of acting alone outside congressional action and the action by this administration to attempt to punt those questions back to Congress, to attempt to actually make them make a decision and be accountable for them. That, I think, is healthy. And that's something, if you talk about sort of the think tanks or others that should be encouraged uh, to allow the political processes to actually run their course. All right, that's going to have to be the last word. Uh, please give a round of applause to our great panelists. Okay, we, we are going to take a very short break, bring up our new panelists, and we're going to uh, reconvene at 10.30. You, you need to use that. Howdy. Voice of the alt-right. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for reading it. Yes. Oh, yes.
How are you? Good, good. So the newer thing gets more interesting. Huh? I, I had yeah, maybe it is. Um, he, uh, I had, I had the most hilarious conversation with John Down. He was Trump's lawyer who quit. Um, even though he's still advising him because he's been telling him he can't go in there and, and talk he's to him. He's a good him. guy. He's he smart. Yeah. And he's still for Trump. Yeah. And he's still helping. Um, if, if, if everyone could please take a seat. Yeah. We do want to get going. General Kelly. Um, so the two of them, though, I mean, that makes me feel better. Yeah, yeah, much better. He says they're putting enormous pressure on well, He seems the more and more is at the center of everything. You know, no, in fact, he's talking to me, so he knows a lot more about him than I do. So Why do you think that he does not want the original mandate? I sense that some of the stuff in there is going to be. It's going to show that they relied on the Steele dossier to, to for the, the, for the very beginning. Yeah. But I think I, I think it'll show that the Steele dossier informs what the parameters that he gave. Have you home. talked to Devin and those guys? This implant guy, they think. Yeah. Yeah, I talked to him. I knew who they got from Saturday. Steve or Steph? This Britain? Is he a Briton? He's Britain based. Um, well, somebody. Um, He's in a position to know. Told me this morning that that could be a head thing. There's so many twists and turns in this. The whole thing is based on Hillary was going to win, so all this stuff was going to be rewarded. Right. right. And then when never she never looked at, it. never looked at. It. Then when she lost, it became a second, a second fallback was it was an excuse for her loss. They bet on the wrong horse. But it, it goes to show that they had, they had not one bit of the discipline that people have when they think someone's going to be checking their work. They thought he, she would they were really sloppy. and it was just total green light for them to do. But they were they were right that even with that sloppiness, it's taken a year over a year to find out. Yes, I don't think anyone could have predicted Rose's. I mean, he's really been. The All right, we're clo we're closing the doors, so we're we're going to start. All right, the first panel, as you know, was about uh, bureaucracy in Washington. I, I'm not sure why we didn't call it uh, talking about the swamp in Washington. Uh, and the next one is going to be about the rule of law, which, as you all know, is fundamental uh, to a uh, republic and is something that I think makes this country unique among nations in the world because we are based uh, just on the rule of law. Again, I'm going to give you a very short introduction of our three speakers <coughs> Uh, and again, I think we have a very impressive lineup here. Uh, first, we're going to have Victor David Hansen. Uh, he's the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and Senior Fellow at the National Review Institute, where uh, you can read his many intelligent, thought-provoking columns uh, in National Review. Uh, 
He's also taught at Hillsdale College, Stanford University, the U.S. Naval Academy, and Pepperdine University. Uh, by the way, I, I taught a guest lecture at the U.S. Naval Academy last year, and those are the politest students I've ever been in front of. Um, he has won numerous prizes, including the Bradley Prize in 2008, and has written or edited 23 books, including his latest, The Second World Wars. Uh, next is going to be Andy McCarthy, who's a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. Uh, he is the former chief assistant U.S. attorney uh, in New York, best known for leading the prosecution of the Blind Sheik and 11 other jihadists for the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center and a plot to bomb other New York City landmarks. Uh, for those of us uh, who are fellow veterans of him at the Department of Justice and read his frequent uh, and very, frankly, outstanding legal analyses, uh, he is known as a prosecutor's prosecutor. And he's author of several books, including Willful Blindness, A Memoir of Jihad, and Spring Fever, The Illusion of Islamic Democracy. Uh, finally, we will have J. Christian Adams, uh, President and General Counsel of the Public Interest Legal Foundation, which is dedicated to improving election integrity across the nation. Uh, he previously served as a trial attorney at the U.S. Justice Department. Who, who was it that hired you, Christian? You. <laughs> Uh, and uh, general counsel to the uh, South Carolina Secretary of State. He is a legal editor at uh, Pajamas Media, a frequent columnist and television commentator, and author of Injustice, Exposing the Racial Agenda of the Obama Justice Department. Uh, Victor, you're first, and you can either speak from there or come up to the podium. to thank uh, the Bradley Foundation for hosting this as well as the Heritage. I just thought I'd speak for about 10 minutes on the backstory of what the experience of illegal immigration and the absence of law firsthand. I, I live in an area that's about 80 percent Hispanic and maybe 40 to 50 percent quote-unquote undocumented. The per capita income of rural Fresno County is about 13,000. And then I have the fortunate experience of during the week working at Stanford University where the per capita income of that San Mateo County is about 130000 So it's, economically it's going from the pre-modern to the post-modern world. And I must say after 15 years of this, I'm like a cartoon character. My head's exploding. Um, I write for the Chicago Tribune as well, and I noticed about eight years ago I was told I could not use the word uh, illegal alien. Three years later I um, was using illegal immigrant, and then it had to be undocumented immigrant, and then they said, let's get rid of the undocumented and just say immigrant, and now I notice there's migrant, so you have the Latin prefix X or in out, as if it's an organic process that just came on its own. At the same time, you, you get this sort of elite attitude. Two weeks ago, I was in town, and a guy backed out and hit my car. It happens a lot, and uh, no, we call it the three no's, no license, no registration, no insurance. He had a lot more damage than I did in my broken Spanish and his broken English. He pointed out that the cops would waste three hours of my time, and my time was more valuable, he said, than his time. And if I gave him $100, he'd leave. And so <laughs> I gave him $150, happy that he had two or 3000 I only had a couple hundred. So what I'd like to do is just walk through why we have illegal immigration and 
we use the Latin phrase qui bono, who does it benefit? About six entities, and then I'll give you just a, my backstory. Um, it be, benefits the Mexican government. They get about $30 million, billion, excuse me, in remittances, and the Central American governments get about 25. If you do the math and you still believe that archaic figure of 11 million undocumented, illegal, whatever <clears throat> term we use, it works out to three or $400 a month. My experience is when I go shopping at the Walmart in rural Fresno County, I've started to notice over the last 10 years that the number of EBT cards, electric bank transfer cards, has increased, and I, I, I study the amount of funds. And then the, my next stop is always the cleaners, which is next door to the Western Union office. So I go into the Western Union office, talk to people, and it's almost the same amount of money each week goes to Mexico. And if you do the math, it works out to the... 30 million that the people were using to subsidize food. So in a very strange way, we are subsidizing these remittances, and yet I don't hear anybody talking about it. Donald Trump talks a lot about a wall, but if he would slap a 10% tax on the Salma office of Western Union, I think he would get about $50 per person per week, and he could build his, you know, times 11 million. It would, But that's a very different view of what you read. Another entity that benefits from illegal immigration, obviously, are employers. And as a farmer, you would say ag, but ag is about 20%. Now it's meatpacking, manufacturing, especially construction, landscaping, and the biggest uh, percentage are employed by hospitality, hotels and restaurants. And the way it kind of works is that they, the employer doesn't just get good labor, he gets some of the best labor in the world. But the people who are coming now are not from Laredo or Sonora as they had in the past or near the border with the high school education. They're many times indigenous people. And so where the employer thinks that this is a wonderful buy from a young man 18 to 40, these were considered entry-level jobs. When an entry-level job is a permanent job, people get hurt, they do not learn English, they don't get an education, and then their children, whom I taught at Cal State Fresno for 22 years, get embittered. And they point to their father and they say, he worked 25 years on a ladder or in a meet. He has a bad arm and it wasn't fair. And so they get not the contrast between Oaxaca and a wonderful America, but they see their parents' odyssey and they don't think it worked out and they get embittered and they're not willing as Americans to do the same type of job that their parents did. So it's sort of a Russian roulette, and the answer the employer has is bring me more people from Oaxaca so we can recycle them through this process and have the state subsidize the uh, health care cost, et cetera. And then the next generation, we don't find that they work like their parents, so we'll get another generation. And it's an endless cycle, and you can see it firsthand. Um, a third beneficiary is what I'd call the ethnic industry. And these are what we're happening is we're going through a process of what I call reverse assimilation. Uh, my favorite is Kevin De Leon, former, he's in the California State Senate, former speaker. He was, I always followed him as Kevin Leon. And then suddenly, about 10 years ago, he added the day and added an, ac an acute accent on his O, and he became Kevin De Leon. And this process is very common in California. And I, because I see the camera, I want to be very careful what I say, because I have members of my own family, Hispanic, that are part of this process. But essentially, people reinvent themselves if they're a quarter, half Hispanic, 
Hispanicized, George becomes Jorge, an accent mark is added, sometimes a day, and then they become a spokesman for the collective uh, poverty or aspirations of illegal immigrants. It's very dishonest, I think, and yet they're uh, embedded or they're invested in this system. So besides the Mexican government, we have an ethnic lobby, and then there's the Democratic Party. It was about 10 years ago, I know, that my at my local poll, we don't have driver's license for ID, and I started to go in, I started to see four legs and six legs instead of two legs inside the voting booth. And uh, I would say, well, this is illegal, or you're not supposed to put Obama stickers on this, or you're not asking for any ID. And then I started talking to local officials who were losing the election on election day, and then stupid Victor would say, well, you know, if I could be sexist, older ladies that are very, used to have gray hair or blue hair and old guys, they do absentee ballots. And they'd say, Victor, 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 wait till the absentee ballots come in. And they would win by overwhelming margins through absentee ballots, through people who, of dubious registration. And it was obvious that you could see what was going on. You couldn't do much about it. <laughs> So those three groups, and there was a Democratic Party, just as California will never, I don't think, again, be uh, red. And I, I think New Mexico and Nevada may not be red, so Arizona is targeted. And the idea is that if you can have people come in mass illegally without high school educations and then you can nurse them on entitlements, then their fealty will be rewarded at the ballot box in perpetuity, or at least two, two or three generations. And that success, I think, is, uh, is undeniable. There's another group, and that's the upper middle class. When I was growing up, only aristocrats and wealthy people had what we called help. And over the last 30 years, the upper middle class or the middle class in California has developed this idea they need maids, nannies, and landscapers, many, in most cases, from Mexico. I never quite understood it because I'll go to Palo Alto and I'll see people come sweating onto campus and they'll tell me they're working an hour a day at the gym and I'll say, why not just mow the lawn? <laughs> or why not do the dishes? Or why not fix that shingle? But why would you go and work six, seven hours and then hire somebody? And usually the anecdotes are very, I don't want to be too critical, but they're paternalistic. Well, Herlinda is a great person. We give her all our used clothes. And Juan does such a good job trimming the thing. We gave him our used car, and illegal immigration is great. And I said, well, where does Juan live? And where do his children go to school? And how well does he speak English? And do you have any experience with him outside this? And the answer is no. But it's a, it sort of squares a circle that people in the abstract can be for illegal immigration because it helps them in the concrete, and then they don't worry about the consequences. That's another constituency that we've created a aristocratic class that thinks they need help out of the what was the middle class, at least in the American Southwest. Uh, then... Besides all these groups, the Democratic Party, the ethnic lobby, uh, the employer, Mexico, then there's us, and us is the people who are not directly invested, our beneficiaries, but the climate has been created that if you were to question the legality, the morality, the ethics, the practicality of allowing a half a million people to come in uh, without... Um, what we would call papers, or to a host that believes in the salad bowl rather than the melting pot, or um, you question any of these pretenses, you're called a racist, nativist, um, restrictionist, and so most of us just 
see privately because they see the rule of law uh, overturned. And I, my, um, I was getting very depressed about this the last three or four years. My kids all went to the public schools. My family's all intermarried with Hispanics. And the person across the street from me uh, was a Greek-American farmer they sold to somebody from Mexico. There is now about 45 people living across the street from me and nine Winnebago's. And they're all illegal, porta-potties, uh, Romex wire, about 30 dogs, no license, no vaccination. If you get bit by one, believe me, uh, you don't want to go through the rabies, and your doctor will say, well, there's only four rabies cases in California by dog bite, but they were all from Mexico. <laughs> so you don't know whether, to, when I get bit, I don't know whether to go through the process or just take my chances. And it gets very angry because I was putting solar panels, and California is a state, remember, where they cannot deal with the existential felony, so they focus on the irrelevant misdemeanor. So <laughs> you have a target on your back, so... I'm, you know, older white guy puts solar panels on his old barn. That, that rings bells. So I had all these inspectors coming out and saying, this wasn't on our map in eight, uh, 1952 in our Google map, and we find this two-by-four not quite right. And I say, well, will you just go across the street? <laughs> and it's, it's funny. You said to me, you have to be F-blanking insane. We're not going to go near there. And his <laughs> subtext was, we're a sanctuary state. There's political, economic, cultural, social landmines all through that house across the street. We're not going to do it, and you're going to pay, and you, we know you'll pay, so we're going to overregulate you to compensate for the fact that California is a postmodern and premodern state. I, I want to finish by not being too pessimistic. Well, a little bit pessimistic. <laughs> My wife and I walk around our farm, and we pick up about once a week a dead dog, because dog fighting is very common, and you have the rope around it, the neck, and they're disemboweled. And we have a beautiful nest of red tails. Every once in a while, somebody comes and shoots one. So we were getting very depressed and, um, two weeks ago. And garbage, we find all the garbage. People dump it out. We have the names of the power, their power bill. Their, nobody's subtle about it. You call up the sheriff, he'll do nothing. If I put it in my truck and I go over and dump it on the address... I'm not sure it's always the person because they hire people to collect their trash and dump it on your place. So I was getting very depressed about this. So I said to my wife, you know, Cal State Fresno, 53% remediation for the incoming class. But they had a wonderful library. A man named Henry uh, Madden went to Germany after World War II and bought about 30,000 rare texts. And, and when I was the classics program, we, we, we ordered this entire classics library of about another 40,000 texts, and it's completely unused. As you know, Cal State University libraries are more like student unions. I mean, everybody drinks and eats and talks and does social media. But if you go down in the bowels of the library, you can see this, this skeleton of what used to be a great library. And I was working on this, uh, I'm working on a book on how wars end, and I wanted to go get the GOM commentary on Thucydides and the Greek, and Greek texts. My books are at Stanford, so I went in there, just after I was depressed, I said to my wife, i got to get away from this. So I went in there, and there was one person in the bowels of the library, a young Mexican-American girl, 
And so I thought, being an arrogant white guy, I thought I was prejudiced. So I said, are you lost? I can help you. And she says, no, I'm looking for Thucydides. And I said, "Uh, what are you looking for? And she said, I'm looking for the landmarks Thucydides. And I said, you met the right guy. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) so I didn't say who I was. So she said, I said, what do you want to do? And she says, I'm studying the the stasis of Corsaira. And I want to know about Alcibiades. Do you, do you think he was involved? And I said, well, let's discuss this. We've got to go through Diodorus and Plutarch. And we sat down and talked for two hours. And I came home and my wife said to me, well, did you get over your pessimistic? And she calls me Eeyore now. Eeyore, did you get over your pessimistic? And I said, the, um, you know, I think the glass, it, we've turned tragedy into melodrama, but nevertheless, the glass is not half empty, um, but it's, it may be an eighth of the way full. So in all of this tragedy, there is things to look for if we just go back to the idea that immigration is a positive for the United States if it's measured and legal and diverse and meritocratic. And the problem is not with the immigrant, it's with us. And we lost confidence in our ability to assimilate people, and if we don't change that attitude, then we deserve what we get. Thank you very much. Good morning. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. I'm very grateful to the uh, Bradley Foundation and the Heritage Foundation for inviting me. Um, I'm here to talk about the Trump-Russia investigation, <laughs> so I won't be quite as brimming over with optimism as Victor was. <laughs> um, it, it, it's interesting. The, the topic that uh, when Diane first was good enough to ask me to speak here for a few minutes, Uh, the topic we came up with was obstruction confusions because that was what was going on uh, in the investigation at that moment in time. But it it seems that what we, the one thing we have learned about this investigation is that every hot topic has a shelf life of about six hours. So I think, had we known about Stormy um, back then, we probably would have come up with a better title than uh, Obstruction Confusions, but I, I won't speculate on what that might have been. Um, it, I think it is, though, worth, um, in terms of a, an overview and also trying to tie it into what we're here to talk about today, which is the, uh, which is the Constitution, um, it's worth asking, what does the Trump-Russia investigation say about the state of the Constitution. And that calls into question really the, que- the matter of how is a president supposed to be reined in in our system? Uh, we've been operating under the assumption for really more than a year now that a special counsel, that this is the newest iteration of what in our recent history has been called uh, an independent prosecutor, a special prosecutor, independent counsel, all different uh, iterations of the same thing, which is this idea that you can have an inferior executive branch official uh, conduct a coercive investigation of the the chief executive. And I would suggest that it's a perversion of the system that the framers gave us in the first place, that there is no way conceivably that the framers would have thought if they had an idea at all about what a federal prosecutor was, uh, that a federal prosecutor would have been the way 
uh, to rein a president in. I mean, if you think about it, we did not have a Justice Department as we know it uh, until really the beginnings of it, uh, 1870 or so, and clearly even then, not anything like what we know it to be today. The FBI did not exist uh, until 1908. Um, so it, it's pretty clear that the framers certainly did not conceive of, a, of this idea of a big federal executive branch law enforcement slash intelligence investigation uh, of the president. And then you have the nature of executive power. Um, and on that score, I think probably nothing uh, better in modern history has been written about the nature of executive power than Justice Scalia's dissent uh, presciently, famously in Morrison v. Olson in the early 1980s, which explained that in our system, all executive power is reposed in one official, the President of the United States. Um, what that means as a practical matter is that every single other officer of the executive branch does not exercise his own power. Every other officer of the executive branch is actually a delegate who is permitted to exercise the president's power uh, at the president's pleasure, which is why they can be uh, removed at will. So bottom line, what that means in terms of structural protections, in terms of the way the, the nature of executive power, no prosecutor in his right mind would go into an investigation such as the one that Robert Mueller was appointed to take over in May of 2017, no prosecutor would go in believing he could indict the president. Indeed, there are opinions of the Office of Legal Counsel, the, the lawyers' lawyers at the Justice Department, which flatly say that when a president is power, in power, the president can't be indicted. And because Mueller actually answers to executive branch supervision, uh, those opinions, in theory at least, are binding on him as well. So I think practically speaking and constitutionally speaking, this investigation from the beginning has been about one thing and one thing only, and that is, can Mueller assemble enough proof to show high crimes and misdemeanors such that Congress might consider filing articles of impeachment in the House, and ultimately conducting an impeachment trial in the Senate. That is to say, the investigation's been about impeachment from the beginning. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying, because I don't know, that Robert Mueller wants to impeach President Trump. But I do think that he is about the business of conducting as comprehensive an investigation as can be imagined in order to find out uh, if there is a basis to argue that there are high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, and that brings us to the way that the uh, investigation was structured. Um, all independent counsel investigations that we've seen in modern history have this problem of becoming ultimately, if not unguided missiles, probes that begin in one place and often end years later someplace very much removed from where they started from in the first place. In other words, the original rationale for the investigation is rarely what the dispositions of whatever cases get brought uh, is relevant to. 
That's a problem when you follow the regulations. The normal regulations for appointing an independent prosecutor say that the Justice Department has to state, articulate the parameters, the factual basis of a criminal investigation. That's not just rhetoric in the regs. The purpose of having them articulate the grounds, the crimes that the special counsel is authorized to investigate is because that description becomes the jurisdiction, the, the boundaries of the investigation of the special counsel. Now, it's not a perfect way, obviously, of going about it because the special counsel can always go back to the Justice Department and ask for his investigation, his jurisdiction to be expanded. And that's why these investigations take so long and they seem to bounce way away from where they originally start. But in this investigation, um, because the rules were not followed, what is, what is seemingly inevitable in every other investigation became a certainty, which is that we have no idea what the boundaries of the investigation are. And to be specific about that, what Mueller was delegated, what he was appointed to take over, was an investigation that former FBI Director James Comey had described in testimony before the House in March of 2016. I'm sorry, 2017. And that is what he rather shockingly publicly announced as uh, an investigation of Russia's interference in the 2016 election. That was shocking because you never uh, confirm the existence of an investigation in the Justice Department. It's just not done. It's against regulations. But then he added on to that, um, in addition to the Russian interference piece, any Trump campaign coordination in that interference, which was shocking on two grounds. One, that he would confirm the investigation. And secondly, we now know that Director Comey had repeatedly told President Trump that he was not a suspect and wasn't under investigation. And yet he gave a statement publicly that anyone with an IQ over 11 would have known would make everybody in the country suspect that the president was a criminal suspect. And as a result of that, since March, if not before, the president has been, despite what they were telling him privately, he has been under the cloud uh, of a criminal investigation. This is the investigation that Mueller was given by uh, Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, uh, after Director Comey was removed. Um, and the reason that it's so problematic is the investigation is a counterintelligence investigation. A counterintelligence investigation is not a criminal investigation. The purpose of a counterintelligence investigation is to divine the intentions and activities of foreign powers, usually hostile ones, to the extent that they may compromise American interests. And to the extent that American citizens get involved in them, it is to determine whether they are furthering the interests of a foreign power without disclosing that to the Justice Department as they're supposed to under federal law. But the idea of the investigation is not to build a criminal case. It happens sometimes. I worked on terrorism cases, as, as, uh, as Hans mentioned uh, before. Uh, in those cases, you can investigate a terrorist organization as a foreign power, and if it turns out that criminal evidence 
rolls out of that, that evidence can be used by the Justice Department to prosecute. But that's the rare counterintelligence investigation. And indeed, in the 1990s, it was thought to be quite the scandal that the Justice Department could, even in theory, use its counterintelligence powers as a pretext to conduct criminal investigations. So now we've gone from that being a big scandal, or at least the thought of it being a scandal in the mid-1990s, to today, where a prosecutor is actually given a counterintelligence investigation and essentially <clears throat> told, go on and see if you can find some crimes and maybe even charge the president. But again, it won't be to charge the president in an indictment. It'll be to charge the president in an impeachment proceeding. And let me close by just saying a few words about impeachment. Um, when I said at the beginning there was no way that a prosecutor would think that he could rein in a president with a criminal proceeding in court, um, the way that the framers conceived of reining in a rogue president was mainly by the power of the purse and the power of impeachment. The power of the purse over time, especially the dysfunctional way that we legislate, which the, the first panel was quite effective, I thought, covering, um, the power of the purse is really not, as a practical matter, much of a threat to the executive branch anymore. So what you're left with really is impeachment. And as Madison said in the debates over including an impeachment provision in the Constitution, uh, impeachment is an indispensable remedy. If this system is going to work properly, uh, the only way it can work is if people who wield awesome executive power understand that if they abuse the power, they can be removed. And of course, that has not been uh, something that's uh, been invoked uh, very often in our history, uh, never invoked uh, successfully. I guess Nixon would have been impeached. Um, but the point is, at, over time, uh, it seems like less and less of a remedy. But the important thing to remember in terms of where we are now and where we go forward uh, as this investigation unfolds is that impeachment is a political remedy and not a legal one. So the fact is that I think this is, in fact, why you see, uh, to my mind, welcome pushback by the White House on the conduct of the investigators during the investigation and whether they abuse their powers. Because they understand, I think, now at least, that they are not in a legal battle. They are not formulating a legal defense to a court case. They're actually in the court of public opinion in what effectively is eventually uh, either going to be an impeachment proceeding or there'll be nothing. And because impeachment is a, is a political remedy and not a legal one, what that means in the end is you can have proof of a thousand high crimes and misdemeanors, but if there is not a consensus in the country that is enough to force two-thirds of the Senate, that supermajority, to want to remove the president from power, the president is not going to be removed. So I think what you'll see over time is it, it, become, it, it seems to me it's becoming clear already that the president is not going to be impeached. If the Democrats win the midterms, it's possible in the House they could file articles of impeachment. Uh, but the president will never be removed from power, not only because he shouldn't be, just because the political reality, reality will be that he can't be. And I would think that what that means is that 
as we go forward, you're going to see more of our attention shifted from Trump and Russia, which seems to be a dry hole at this point, to exactly how the investigators wielded the awesome powers that we trust them to wield. And I think that's an investigation that has to happen. Thank you. Good morning. It's very humbling to be invited by Bradley to speak at Heritage, and it's also challenging to follow everybody uh, that you've already heard from and to wrap up the show, if you will. So uh, it's, it's great to be here to see so many friends. The topic that I've been asked to talk about is how the left uses fights over rules to transform the nation. And specifically, I will talk about election issues. Um, first of all, I'm going to discuss some of the rule of law issues you've heard a good deal about. I'm not sure if I'm on the pessimist, Civil War, Eeyore side or not. Uh, but I will then talk about some of the election issues that are very specific to the work that I'm involved in. Now, others have used the term post-constitutional, that we live in a post-constitutional era. And most of us remember a time, not long ago, when the rule of law and the Constitution weren't under open attack by so many institutions. But what do I mean by post-constitutional? Well, there are a couple of characteristics, I think. First of all, law is used by those in power, often bureaucrats, to advance their ideological views through their power. Law is no longer a fixed, largely agreed-upon principle. Instead, it becomes something elastic, subjective, defined by the latest best argument cooked up at Harvard Law School or Yale. In the good old days, law was the great leveler. We could all agree on the basics. Now, in my field of election law, everybody essentially agreed that uh, election law was designed to ensure the integrity of the process. For example, if we learned that a large number of non-citizens, of aliens, were registering to vote, something I will discuss shortly in the presentation, then all sides, Democrat, Independent, and Republican, would look for fixes. Nobody would cook up excuses to defend the practice, excuse the practice, minimize the practice. It would be confronted and fixed by everybody. But now, law professors and the academy, I believe, view law largely as a means to keep and enhance power. Law schools and law professors sometimes seem busier dismantling the Constitution because of their dislike of it and the people who wrote it than they are teaching what it actually says. After all, why teach what it actually says when you aim to replace it? Now, do I overstate the case? Is this fanciful, a, a, a conspiratorial uh, fantasy that enemies of the Constitution are seeking to replace it and Machiavellian bureaucrats and lawyers manipulate the law to achieve partisan ends? Well, in 2010, when I left the Justice Department, I thought such a claim might be hard to swallow. But the perpetrators of these views have obliged us by being very explicit in the last few years. Foes of the Constitution now hide in plain sight. Let me briefly note two examples of many, many others. Who can forget Georgetown law professor Lewis Seidman's editorial in the New York Times called... Let's give up on the Constitution. After all, as he put it, quote, 
a group of white propertied men who have been dead for two centuries and knew nothing of our present situation and thought it was okay to own slaves disagreed, unquote, with what progressives want to do. It's in the New York Times by a Georgetown law professor. Getting closer to my area of expertise, election law, there was a law review article at Stanford Journal of Law and Public Policy by a very esteemed election law professor from the University of Michigan named Ellen Katz called, titled, uh, quote, Democrats at DOJ, why partisan use of the Voting Rights Act might not be so bad after all. So when I say they hide in plain sight, these are the things that I mean. And there's many, many more examples of hostility to our Constitution and the rule of law becoming mainstream. These are threats to our constitutional order that I will submit to you. Our old means of defense are largely ineffective. We have entered a new battle space, I believe, between the left and the right. No longer do we have gentle disagreements about public policy. Instead, the left has sought to criminalize many disagreements, has weaponized the law to attack their foes, both personally and substantively, and is pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into a multi-front war to transform the remaining institutions that they have not already transformed and to silence opposition. I'm afraid that the scholarly voices that have been so effective in the past will no longer be an effective rebuttal. And hence, I believe you can explain one reason why President Trump was elected, where the American public who believe in this Constitution, who believe in the rule of law, saw it under attack from so many places. Now let me turn, if I might, to the few examples where this is happening in my own field, which is election law. The transformative left understands that process drives policy. What do I mean by that? Process drives policy. Well, process are the rules, the boring things, if you will. Conservatives are often very interested in policy issues, rightfully so. They care about the issues, the policies, the plans. Whereas the left is spending hundreds of millions of dollars to destroy your policies through the use of process. Now, what are some of these examples? We've all heard of redistricting, right? That's one of the process rules, where the left is pouring hundreds of uh, tens of millions of dollars into redistricting fights. How they draw the lines make a difference. Now, thankfully, there's sort of a equilibrium between the two sides in the area of redistricting. Not entirely, but to some extent. My organization, the Public Interest Legal Foundation, is involved in litigation all around the country where the left is engaged in changing the process rules. Let me take you to Nevada and a brief mention of a case there. Nevada has, like some states do, a recall election provision where if somebody wins, they can be recalled after a sufficient number of signatures seek a recall. Well, three Nevada senators faced a recall petition. And the law firm Perkins Coie, who some of you know and, and has been involved in these process issues all over the country, filed a challenge to Nevada's recall law under the Voting Rights Act claiming that any recall is discriminatory. Now, how does this work? Bear with me. They say that if you have to go and vote in a recall election, it discriminates against people who don't speak English well because they tend not to follow the news. That is literally in the complaint. Okay? 
So we brought a, a, a challenge. We helped defend the state of Nevada, but ultimately the case was mooted because the recall petitioners didn't get enough signatures. Let me take you to citizenship verification issues. Now, you recall the president made a statement about uh, aliens participating in the elections. We don't know how many did because nobody's ever really looked at it. But I can tell you that all around the country, there are defects in the motor voter registration system that are allowing non-citizens to participate in our elections. Since I'm the last speaker, I will uh, try to keep everybody alert by having some audiovisual aids. We have been litigating cases around the country to get data. If you don't know how many non-citizens are elected, uh, participating, it's probably because nobody's been asking. So what we started doing is litigating to get some data. Let me show you some of the documents that we have found in this litigation. This is a motor voter registration form under the Motor Voter Law of 1993. This is of an actual registered voter, I believe in Albemarle County in Virginia. Take a look at the very top left. Are you a citizen of the United States of America? Answer, no. Okay? This person was registered to vote for quite some time. And this isn't the only one. This is from Jiling Zhao. Are you a citizen of the United States of America? No. Registered to vote in the Commonwealth of Virginia. There's more. Are you a citizen of the United States of America? No. Registered to vote in the Commonwealth of Virginia. More. Yun Uk Bay, are you a citizen of the United States of America? No. These are actual registered voters. Now, you'll notice, canceled for non-citizenship in 2015, uh, oftentimes is decades after they're registered. Here's another one. I won't hazard what the name is, but it's, it's right there. Are you a citizen of the United States of America? No. Okay. Now, these are not the only five examples we have found. These are the only five that I brought with me today. Now, as I said, in the old days, everybody would agree, let's fix this problem, right? Democrats, independents, Republicans would all agree. I can tell you there is litigation around the country in multiple federal courts fighting to preserve these defects. Cases brought by Common Cause, the ACLU, League of Women Voters, to preserve these defects in the system. Kansas, DCDC, we have a case here in DCDC, District Court in the District, where the federal government simply approved a change to that form that you all just saw that allowed the state of Kansas, Alabama, and Georgia to implement their state verification of citizenship requirements. And the League of Women Voters sued and said you can't do that. That case is still going on. Now, many of you have heard about voter ID, right? That's normally what people associate with process fights, or the voter ID fights. I was at the Justice Department around these uh, folks at the Civil Rights Division long enough that I'm going to clue you in on a little secret why voter ID is so opposed. Now, most people that I talk to say, you have to have voter ID to do everything, right? They like to say, get on a plane. I like to say, buy alcohol. Hans and I came up with the argument to get married, right? That's a fundamental right, to get married, and you need ID to do that in most places. The dirty little secret why folks oppose voter ID is because they believe that their political constituency will lose it or forget it. Now, I'm quite serious about this. They, and they may be well right, I don't know, I haven't done the social science, but they believe that if you have a voter ID law, too many people will misplace it or lose it and it will hurt their electoral prospects. So that, that's what's going on. And you can see it manifest in places like North Carolina and Texas where litigation was brought against those states for changes involving voter ID and early voting. Uh, Hans and I have both written about, about the expert this will tell you everything you need to know about sort of the collectivist dehumanizing approach
they hired an expert of the United States who testified that, literally testified that black voters are less sophisticated and therefore they don't know that, uh, that they need things like voter ID. That was the expert of the United States who you all paid for substantial sums of fees. Identity politics is the jet fuel that's driving all of this. The transformation that these folks are seeking is being driven by identity politics. And at its core, identity politics is essentially a dehumanizing collectivist approach that doesn't look at the individual worth of people, where it assumes you're part of a group and you must behave like a group. And I'll close with this last example. I wrote a piece of the Washington Times criticizing moves toward early voting. Remember, remember the old days when elections were on election day, right? Now, of course, we have early voting in some states. In Wyoming, I think it starts almost at the end of September. So you have this month-long process. And I wrote a piece saying, remember the presidential election with George Bush uh, in 2000 where there was that weekend uh, bombshell? Early voting does not allow for fully informed voters. You can't make your decision on Tuesday because you don't know what happens on the weekend before. And there was a lot of criticism of that on the left, of, of that view, and here's how they framed it. People on that side of the aisle, namely me, uh, do not view politics as an expression of collective will. They think that it's contemplative, rational, and uh, reflective. Okay? Yes, I've, I've, I can tell I've described many of you here. <laughs> we view politics as contemplative, rational, and, and reflective. They view politics as a muscular collectivist expression that represents interest groups as opposed to individual choices. And it, it, the attacks on, uh, on, on criticism of early voting really illustrated this to me. That we're dealing with a, a movement that's attempted transforming the country through a very dehumanizing collectivist approach. And I, I think the process rules that I'll close with, such as voter ID, recall, redistricting, uh, early voting, same-day registration, by the way, facilitates glitches like in Minnesota, where if you can just walk in and, and vote without pre-registering, you had 1,200 ineligible felons participate in that election in Minnesota, and that election gave us Al Franken, and that gave us Obamacare. So it makes a difference. You transform a country by transforming the rules and the process of those rules. Uh, thank you all very much for your time and attention. I appreciate being here. Thank you. All right, we did start late, but we do have time for uh, some questions. And uh, I, I actually, again, uh, want to ask the first question. And, and I, I'd like to go back to something um, uh, I think, Andy, you talked about, and, and uh, Christian also, and that is the criminalization of political differences. Can, can you expound just a little bit on that? Because that, to me, seems to be one of the most dangerous trends that, that we have today. It is, it's very hard to look at, in, in a close way, everything that has happened uh, not only since Trump was elected, um, but in the, in, even in the run-up to the election, and come away with any other conclusion than that most of this was driven by political opposition and not real suspicion of 
criminal behavior. And, you know, it's an interesting point. Our Director Comey spoke of this a lot. A number of our friends in the Justice Department speak of this a lot. The importance of the independence of law enforcement. The idea that there should not ever be political interference in law enforcement. When you listen to these guys speak, it's almost as if they think they're an independent fourth branch of the government that isn't even answerable to the political leadership of the government. And the way I've always thought about this is there should not, there cannot, if we're going to have credible rule of law, be politicization in the four corners of a case. There can't be politicization about who gets targeted to be prosecuted and how the rules get applied uh, in, a, in a case. Um, but we have to have law enforcement and intelligence officials who are answerable to the political representatives of government because if we don't, we have tyranny. And it's, I think, been bad enough when it looked like the, the law enforcement tools and, and laws that, uh, that we empower our investigators with are politicized. This is a different level of it because if you're going to now take the position that they can use counterintelligence policies to conduct what, in effect, pretextually are criminal investigations, counterintelligence, as, as I described before, and, and maybe I didn't make this point well enough, counterintelligence is simply an information gathering exercise. That's really what it's about. It doesn't have the discipline of a criminal proceeding where you have specific crimes you're looking at, you have elements of the offense that have to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt, and it has a structure. Counterintelligence, the intelligence guys will tell you there can never be enough information. They can never know enough. And if you're going to allow people to be investigated under the cone of counterintelligence rather than criminal, it, the, the potential for abuse, well, we're seeing it play out now, but the potential for abuse is staggering. Briefly, I, I was on Fox about a week or two ago, and I mentioned, I called this third world stuff in the sense of criminalizing political differences. Um, it really is, of course, those of you who know anything about the third world. But I was thinking, I think the our culture, the Anglo-American tradition of rule of law, I might be wrong, but I think we sort of, abandoned criminalizing political difference in the mid-1600s in the English Civil Wars. I can't, I mean, even the, 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 the um, you know, Tories weren't, at least afterwards, hung up, and, and there was a, a conciliatory attitude by the Union toward the Confederates. I, I can't think of when else we really criminalized political differences since, like, the mid-1600s. All right. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, Steve Einhorn. Bradley Impact Fund. I have an easy question for you, Andrew. It's a how question. Uh, we have Mueller, who has an obvious conflict of interest in terms of Russia. There's a fellow who was the head of the FBI in 2009, 10, 11, knew all about Hillary Clinton and the $150 million or so she got from the Russians, knew about uh, Russian spies that tried to take over the, um, the nuclear industry that we have. And uh, so how, how do you make this public so that the majority of the American people actually understand that this conflict of interest exists? Well, I, I think the way you make things public is you try to do what we've all been doing, which is 
be as loud as we can and as diffuse as we can with the information. But this will disappoint you, I think. But my experience, at least in many years as a prosecutor, was that there were many investigations where there were obvious conflicts of interest. You know, you had lawyers who represented multiple targets and the like. And as much as uh, prosecutors would broil over that, and I know you're talking about a situation where the prosecutor has a conflict, but, but the, my point is that in my experience, it wasn't until you actually indicted someone and had a case in front of a judge that conflicts got confronted and sorted out. And in, in the investigative phase, and we're in an investigative phase that could go on for who knows how long, uh, it, those, stuff, those things usually do not get confronted as they should. Well, no, in terms of publicizing it, I think it's essential to publicize it because, as I said before, we're in, a, we're in an obstruction. If you're thinking of this as a legal proceeding, then right, it won't, it won't happen until there's an indictment or some kind of charging instrument or some kind of court proceeding. But if we're in the context of obstruction, then it's a political battle, and it's each side getting its story out in the court of public opinion, which is much more important than any legal proceeding will be. The lady right there, yeah. Hi, Carla Bruno. I'm with the Leadership Institute. And my question is for Mr. McCarthy. What are the odds that Jim Comey will be indicted? <laughs> you know, the thing I hate about this case is everyone who's in this case is someone who I've known for 30 years. Um, I, I, I've known him, too. He was a year behind me at William & Mary. Okay. Um, can you give us a prediction on the Super Bowl this year, too? <laughs> <laughs> um, Belichick will not be indicted. Um, I, I, I don't think Comey will be indicted. I'll just leave it at that. Y yes, sir. Uh, yes, Alan Carping for Dr. Hansen. Uh, how, uh, how different is the modern uh, immigration from immigration in the 19th century to the early 20th century, when you're talking about the Scottish, the Irish, the Chinese, the Japanese, the uh, European, uh, Eastern Europeans, uh, Russians, Jews, Italians, when literally there was blood in the street, all of the gangs of New York, and basically most of the immigrants really didn't assimilate those that did are the ancestors probably of most of the people here. And so how, how different is it really when we deal with today as opposed to... Being, That's uh, a very good question. I think in two or three main ways. But I <clears> would say that by the third generation, most people did assimilate. And it was rare under the prior immigrations that 30% that of the third generation didn't speak English. That was not, that was not the case. But... Uh, the main difference, as I see it, is that they were periodic. In other words, they came in great waves, but people did not come 100,000 people a year, say, from Sicily ad infinitum. But what we have, because of the proximity of Mexico, is that we have a constant stream. So we don't know how well the melting pot is working because it's constantly, we're starting to get people coming every year, and then we look at a, a large number of people who are not assimilating, or they're not assimilating to the third generation. That's one thing. 
The, the second is that the legality is a hard issue because people go back in the 19th century and say, well, we don't know what, whether there was passports or legality. But I think most people felt that if you went through Ellis Island, that was a legal process. Psychologically, that's very important because if the first thing you do is when you enter the United States, you break the law and you do so with impunity, then you have a different uh, relationship with the law. In other words, that you have a phone. We have one million cases this year, according to the IRS, of false ID. If anybody's had that happen, I've had it happen where somebody took, I wrote a check and they put my router number and then printed up their own checks. And it's pretty strange to have go to the bank and have $10,000 worth of checks written under your name. So that's a very commonplace. And that's because I think people have the attitude that when they came here and they came with impunity and they were not deported, then all of these regulations or whatever we want to call them, misdemeanors, serious misdemeanors, felonies, it's a little easier to break the law. So I think that's one thing. And then the most important is the attitude of us, the host. We were a confident, muscular nation that felt that people had voted with their feet to accept the American paradigm, and it was our duty, brutally, brutal bargain, that we were going to enforce um, an assimilation, integration, and intermarriage. And we weren't we were very realistic about it. In other words, we had a core values of constitutional government, free market economics, separation from church and state, Bill of Rights, the entire American package, and then we left it to the person. They could speak their native language at home, but there wouldn't be interpreters at school, or they could have food or fashion, and all of that periphery, in, which was sort of a multicultural, enriched the country with music and art. What we've done now is we've reversed it. We've said that the core is no different than any other. So if you come here, we don't really feel that we have the moral, ethical, political authority to force you to accept our paradigm, even though people maybe inadvertently or unconsciously voted for that paradigm. One of the strangest, and so we the host don't believe in um, assimilating people, and that message is transferred to people. And it ends, in, it ends into a tragic schizophrenia. I, I remember during the 187, I had a lot of students that I've been teaching Latin and Greek to, and I ran out because I saw one. And I wrote about it underneath the window of the classroom. And I said, Miguel, you're burning the flag of the country you don't want to go back to, and you're waving the country. I mean, you're burning the flag of the country you want to stay in, you're waving the flag of the, no circumstances you want to go back. That's crazy. And he said, well, nobody's told me that before. And so if you, have, if you have a country that does not believe they're exceptional and doesn't feel that it, it's in their purview to tell somebody who wants to join it, here's the brutal bargain, and then history says to you there's no, necess- there's no birthright that the United States has to exist in perpetuity as it is. History's pretty cruel. So I think that people sense that when they come to the United States, there's a deeply conflicted population. There's an elite that do not believe or cannot defend or can't even define what the American values are. And that message to them is for your career, for your livelihood, it's just as viable to be, take a multicultural ambivalent view of Americanism as it is to adopt it. And when you replicate that with an adjacent border to Mexico where people are not diverse, and 60% of our immigrants come from Mexico or Latin America, and they come through illegal auspices in many cases, and they come from southern Mexico now. With often John Kelly was blasted, but he was clinical. If you believe in the truth, he was clinical. He was accurate. They come without a high school diploma. Then 
the challenges of assimilation integration just become force multiplying. And it's, so it's, it's the host that's the biggest change, I think. All right, with time for one more question over here. Didn't want to skip this side of the room. This is the right side for me, so. <laughs> Thank you, Hans. Uh, Sebastian Gorka, this is for Andy or any other panel member. Uh, it's clear that the president has kept a, a hands-off approach to the investigation. If you read the right-wing blogs, they want him to fire Mueller, fire Rod, fire everybody, and he's not doing it. Even if he did, we haven't solved the problem of what happened at DOJ and the way that we have this uber-politicized federal law enforcement and IC. So short of firing everybody, which wouldn't fix it anyway, how do we fix it? Well, Seb, you, you agree with me that hands-off doesn't count as tweets-off? No. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to make sure we were clear on that. Uh, you know, look, I, I think... The way the system is supposed to work, the branches are supposed to check each other. And you're not going to, if, if what you're hoping for is that there'll be a sweeping indictment and, you know, every agent who abused his power or arguably did so is going to be charged, that's never going to happen. And it's, it's really not the way things are supposed to work. I, I think one of the big problems that we have in the system is that we've taken too many problems that are supposed to be decided by political means and made the law and judicial proceedings our sort of default remedial measure. Um, what's, supposed to, what's most important when you have people who abuse their power is that the power be removed from them. Whether in addition to that they get charged at some point you know, is, is interesting, but I think beside the point. So the most important thing to me is that the president, and this is something he can do, um, order the Justice Department and the FBI to be cooperative with the congressional investigations. I think that from what I know about the congressional investigators, contrary to what's written about them in the press, they are not looking to wholesale um, rip through all of the Justice Department and FBI sensitive files, but they do want to find out how did this investigation get started and what, what was the predicate for it. I've litigated these classified information issues before. You can get the information the public is entitled to know out to the public without having to disclose methods and sources of intelligence and national defense secrets and the like. But I think Congress has to keep pressing and the president has to lean on the leadership at Justice and the FBI to cooperate. All right, well, that is... Uh it for the session today. We're out of time. So please, another round of applause for our panel. And thank you to the Bradley Foundation for this event today. Well, thank you. Fusion. Did you know the Washington law firm? Wilmer Hand. That's, uh, isn't that Moles? Yeah.